KPBS On Demand is supported by the University of San Diego, offering professional and continuing education courses in the areas of business, education, healthcare, and engineering. For enrollment opportunities, visit pce.sandiego.edu. Good morning. I'm Kinsey Moreland in for Annika Colbert for the next few days. It is Wednesday, April 14th. Health officials press pause on the Johnson & Johnson vaccine for COVID-19. What does that mean for local vaccination efforts? We'll have that story after your local headlines. San Diego SWAT officers shot and killed an armed man after an hours-long standoff that ended at a high school campus. The victim, Christopher Marquez, is believed to be a fugitive wanted in two shootings within the last month. Police were trying to arrest him last night when he led officers on a car chase and drove into the San Diego High School campus. He then grabbed a woman and jumped into a dumpster. SWAT officers tried for hours to negotiate with Marquez, but say the situation escalated. Here's SDPD's Matt Dobbs. She began screaming and begging for the male not to shoot her. Not to, uh, two officers saw the male push the female towards the ground, and they could see a rifle being brought up, prompting them both to fire their weapons. The woman, by the way, was not hurt. So now that San Diego County is in the orange tier, more Padres fans will be allowed to attend games at Petco Park. Capacity limits will be increased from 20% to 33% starting this Friday. That's when the team begins a six-game homestand. Some sections will be available at 67% capacity for fans who have been fully vaccinated or who have tested negative for COVID within 72 hours. California's COVID-19 positivity rate is just 1.5%. And not only is that the lowest positivity rate in the entire nation, it's the lowest positivity rate in California since the very start of the pandemic. Governor Gavin Newsom tweeted that news late yesterday afternoon. From KPBS, you are listening to San Diego News Now. Stay with me for more of the local news you need. KPBS On Demand is supported by the University of San Diego, offering professional and continuing education courses in the areas of business, education, healthcare, and engineering. For enrollment opportunities, visit pce.sandiego.edu. All right, so there has been a setback for the coronavirus vaccine tested here in San Diego and across the country. With guidance from CDC and FDA, health officials here are pressing pause on the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. So no one here will be given the J&J vaccine while federal officials investigate a possible side effect. KPBS reporter Melissa May talked to local officials yesterday about what it means for San Diego. The CDC and FDA issued a joint statement today that they were reviewing data involving six reported U.S. cases of a rare and severe type of blood clot in individuals who received the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. San Diego County tweeted out that it will immediately pause use of that vaccine out of an abundance of caution. County Supervisor Nathan Fletcher says he believes the impact on San Diego's vaccine program will be minimal. We have increasing supplies of the other ones and we're going to continue moving forward. So, you know, a little little bump in the road, but look, you want to err on the side of caution and you want to err on the side of safety uh, and you want the public to know that, that there's continued monitoring, testing, 
uh, treatment, evaluation uh, as, as we go through this. Right now, these adverse events appear to be extremely rare. All the cases occurred among women between the ages of 18 and 48, and symptoms occurred 6 to 13 days after vaccination. Dr. Christian Ramers is on the county's COVID-19 clinical advisory group. On social media, he put some perspective on the situation comparing the blood clot risk from the vaccine to the risk of the same problem in pregnancy. The immediate reaction is for people to freak out quite a bit, and I don't think we need to freak out right now. Um, this is the system working as it should, actually. And it's pretty impressive that we have a, a vigilance and a safety system that can pick out a one in a million event. Dr. Ramers thinks we need to put this all in perspective and assess their risks. Um, I actually anticipate we will continue to use J&J vaccine in the future. It's just that we need to sort out what this risk is and perhaps avoid giving it in certain populations. People who have received the Johnson & Johnson vaccine who develop severe headache, abdominal pain, leg pain or shortness of breath within three weeks after vaccination should contact their health care provider. In Sacramento, Governor Gavin Newsom has signed a deal that sets aside an additional $535 million for wildfire prevention this year. KPBS environment reporter Eric Anderson has the details. The legislation comes after the state endured the worst wildfire season in modern history. Governor Newsom hopes the money accelerates fire prevention projects in areas that are prone to wildfires. He says climate change is raising the risk that a small fire will grow out of control. Four plus million acres burned last year, more than 2018 and 2019 combined. And while it wasn't the deadliest, or most destructive wildfire season, it certainly was in terms of the total acreage burned. The $536 million legislative package includes money for fire breaks, forest health, and hardening homes. The money comes in addition to nearly $500 million already set aside for firefighting in the state budget. Richard Bloom says people shouldn't be misled into thinking this solves the problem. The focus here is on how much work lays ahead of us, and we need to be conscientious about making sure that this very important funding that we provide this year continues on into the future because we won't get it all done uh, this year. Republican State Senator Scott Wilk, meanwhile, says wildfires have affected nearly every community in the state, and he wants to see some state rules eliminated so more wildfire mitigation efforts can move forward. So most San Diego kids are getting back to in-person learning this week. KPBS reporter Max Rivlin-Nadler spoke with parents and guardians in City Heights about what their first day was like after more than a year of remote learning. It's been exciting to have him back. It's kind of saddening at the same time. He's been home for the last 14 months, so I've gotten used to spending more time with him. Carlos Brown's son is back in school at Ibarra Elementary School in City Heights. For him, the first day of school on Monday was bittersweet. He was happy to see his son back in school and among friends, but he already missed having him around. It was very weird because I'm like used to going back and forth, checking on him, feeding him, and, and overall interacting with him. So it was kind of strange. I had a lot more downtime. <laughs> Maria Eva was dropping off her six-year-old grandson. Without him at home, she says she kept busy and was happy to see her grandson enjoying being back in school. Oh, sí, bastante disfrutó ayer su escuela porque dice que le gustó bastante. 
venir a la escuela. Y lo trataron muy bien. She said her grandson raved about the activities he got to do with his classmates. But most of all, his teacher. Más que nada su maestra. MC Patton is the school's principal. We are finally back and we had about, we think about 250 kids on campus yesterday. And um, protocol, all the distancing, all the signage, the kids are, the kids are great at it. They, they've been living in COVID too. We're not the only ones. Just to see kids outside on the blacktop, on the playground, uh, distanced or not, bouncing a ball was joyful to say the least. Patton says that in a diverse community like City Heights, getting kids back out and interacting with kids from different backgrounds and cultures is incredibly important. This is an amazing community. It has so much to offer. And we have, I love it when in the mornings you see, it looks like the United Nations here. And a Zoom meeting with us looks like the UN. We've got five languages spoken on in being interpreted. We've got, um, people are not, they know this is their home. And there was nothing, but I could see the smiles through the masks yesterday. It was it was easy to see. For the parents and teachers at Ibarra Elementary School, just the sight of kids on the socially distanced playground had them smiling as well. The pandemic has taken a toll on lots of things, especially the movie industry. Most visible to filmgoers has been the temporary and sometimes permanent closure of movie theaters and chains. KBBS arts reporter Beth Accomando says Pacific Theaters and its Arclight Cinemas are the latest to go dark for good. The Arclight website posted this statement. After shutting our doors more than a year ago, today we must share the difficult and sad news that Pacific will not be reopening its Arclight Cinemas and Pacific Theaters locations. This was not the outcome anyone wanted, but despite a huge effort that exhausted all potential options, the company does not have a viable way forward. For San Diegans, the pandemic has been bookended by cinema closures. Last March, the beloved Ken Cinema shut its doors. And now, as theater venues begin to reopen, comes sad news that another art house, Arclight La Jolla, will also go dark. Arclight emphasized the film-going experience by offering state-of-the-art projection, no ads, and vigilant no-cell phone use. Arclight's closure is sad for San Diego, but for L.A., it's heartbreaking because the shutdown affects the iconic Cinerama Dome that was built in 1963 and was home to extravagant film premieres. Cinephiles are hoping something can be done to rescue the chain or at least the Cinerama Dome. But this announcement comes on the heels of the Alamo, another cinephile haven, filing for bankruptcy. This pandemic has altered the movie-going landscape, but cinemas rebounded from the Spanish flu, television, and home video. So we'll have to wait and see what happens next for movie theaters. And coming up, a hard look at racial disparities in policing across San Diego County. And that story after a break, don't touch that digital dial. KPBS On Demand is supported by Arizona Raft Adventures, a third-generation family-owned outfitter providing experiential multi-day Colorado River rafting adventures through the Grand Canyon. Hiking, exploration, education, and fun. Only a seven-hour drive from San Diego. Learn more at azraft.com. So even as the trial for the killing of George Floyd continues, New instances of police violence against Black men are in the headlines. 
one just down the street from where Floyd was killed and elsewhere. An army officer in Virginia was pepper sprayed during a traffic stop, and 20-year-old Dante Wright was killed by police in a Minneapolis suburb on Sunday night, again after a traffic stop. A series of reports in the San Diego Union-Tribune has been exploring bias in policing in our community, and its exploration of who gets stopped, searched, or experiences violence at the hands of police suggests not for the first time that San Diego law enforcement has a bias problem within its ranks. San Diego Union-Tribune watchdog reporter Lindsay Winkley joined KPBS Midday Edition host Maureen Cavanaugh to talk about her findings. We spoke with you about the first installment in this series, and the headline of that report was that although Blacks make up 6% of the overall population here in San Diego, they account for 20% of the traffic stops. Can you tell us what aspects of policing the two final reports explore? Sure. So our second story took a really deep dive into searches and um, something called a hit rate analysis. Um, And basically what that does is it takes a really close look at when individuals are stopped by an officer or a deputy, um, if they are found with some sort of illegal item. And that's important because um, it can sometimes show us that even though particular racial groups are stopped more often by police departments, they are less likely to be found with contraband um, than the white population. Um, And so we sort of found that at the San Diego County Sheriff's Department, Black individuals and Native American individuals were pulled over more often and searched, despite the fact that white populations were found with contraband more often. Um, And similarly, at the San Diego Police Department, we took a close look at something called a consent search. Um, Pay attention to that one, because I think that there's some interesting news on the horizon when it comes to those sorts of searches. But when we looked at consent searches, which is the only reason why that search happens is because an officer asked for it to happen. He doesn't necessarily have to suspect um, that any criminal activity has happened. What we found is that San Diego police officers were more likely to ask to search the Latino population, despite the fact that the white population was more likely to be found with contraband in those particular sorts of searches. The third story was centered on use of force. I think, as you just alluded to, that is certainly something that captures headlines. We know that it's not the full picture of racial disparities in policing, but it's definitely important, and we wanted to explore that more deeply. However, we did couple that story with conversations with activists, police leaders, city leaders, on what they feel needs to change in order to address the disparities that we see in the data. Right. Let me break that down a little bit, but first... Let me ask you what you mean about something on the horizon about consent searches. Yeah, I mean, there have been many calls for consent search policies to change. And Mayor Todd Gloria recently alluded to the fact that the city is going to be exploring some policy changes in that realm. So we'll have to see what comes of that. Your report put a human face on one of the stops and searches. It's a pretty well-known face in San Diego. Attorney and activist Genevieve Jones-Wright. What did she tell you about her experience? Yeah, um, I have had the pleasure of working um, with Genevieve on a number of stories. And um, I just have to say that I was, uh, I was so grateful that she decided to relive this experience with me. Um, But essentially she was um, leaving a memorial for a colleague who had passed away. And 
pretty soon after uh, leaving that sort of beachside get together, she was followed by police. Um, so for miles and miles, they sort of tailed her until she pulled off into a Southeast San Diego neighborhood. And that's when they pulled her over. Um, but it wasn't just a normal stop. This was something called a hot stop, which is when many police officers are present. They had a police canine and um, it was a 10 minute ordeal where she was put into the back of a police car um, because the officers believed that her car had been stolen. And she told them numerous times that it had not, that it was her vehicle. And um, it was just this really extended traumatic ordeal. And the reason why we wanted to highlight that stop is because we wanted to make it really clear that the numbers that we're discussing in this story are experiences for people and at times traumatic experiences for people of color. Um, and that's something that can kind of easily get lost in percentage comparisons and rates and everything else. And so we wanted to make it, you know, we just wanted to help people understand the effect of police stops, particularly on communities of color and more specifically than that, the black community. And what is law enforcement saying about these numbers and what they seem to reveal? Yeah, so the San Diego County Sheriff's Department was a little bit less communicative with us about these numbers. They did speak a little bit to the overrepresentation of Native Americans within their stops, essentially saying that because of the Sheriff Department's responsibility to respond to incidents that are sort of initiated by tribal police departments across the county, that they believe that that's why those numbers were inflated. Um, the San Diego Police Department was much more communicative. Um, and they had a lot of things to say about the numbers. I will say that they did acknowledge that implicit and explicit bias were, you know, likely a factor in the disparities that we saw. But it was really clear that they didn't feel like that was the top of line issue. They were more likely to point to things like criminality, uh, individual experience, such as homelessness or mental illness. Um, and those sorts of circumstances sort of external from the police officer involved would uh, more likely lead to a police contact. You just mentioned that uh, Mayor Todd Gloria is calling for San Diego to, in, in one sense or another, update its police policies. And the statistics coming out, not just from your report, but all across the state, on police stops and searches. It's sparking interest in developing new police policies and procedures. What kind of policy changes are experts considering? We should make it really clear that there are community groups that have been working on this front in San Diego County and beyond, but specifically in San Diego for many, many years. And the disparities that we uncovered in this report are not new. Um, and so that's given a lot of very smart people a lot of time to sort of discuss how to best respond to you know, longstanding disparities. Um, but I would say the two that are, I think, um, some of the most interesting and you hear about them often is A, an end to consent searches and B, an end to pretextual stops. Um, so consent searches, as we sort of discussed earlier, is when um, the only reason why a consent search happens is because an officer or a deputy asks for it to happen. Um, there doesn't need to be any sort of um, reasonable suspicion that a crime has occurred. Um, and there, depending on where you are on the scale, uh, lots of people in the community would just like those things to end. Um, 
but I think there's also another community that would like, um, this is more on sort of the police side of things, to see just much more stringent requirements placed on those sorts of searches. Um, And then you have pretextual stops. Um, Pretextual stops are stops that occur, you know, that can occur for, say, a traffic violation, even though the real reason an officer is pulling somebody over for a traffic violation is some other thing that they suspect might be happening. And similarly, certain groups just want to see those go away. Um, Other people want to see uh, more stringent limits placed on those. So we'll have to see kind of what the end result is if those two things are in fact, going to see some changes. And that was UT Watchdog reporter Lindsay Winkley talking with KPPS Midday Edition host Maureen Cavanaugh. And that is the show for today. But a quick reminder before I go, we have more information about how and where to get your COVID vaccine at kpps.org. Just go to our homepage and then click on the vaccines tab. And one more small but very important thing. If you listen to KPPS via radio, you know we're in the middle of a pledge drive. So podcast listeners, please, please, please do your part and donate to us, your NPR member station, today. Don't wait. Everything we do, including this very podcast you listen to, is financially supported by listeners who are just like you. If you're already a member, thank you. Seriously, we really, really appreciate you. Okay, that is all. Thanks for listening. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, We've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com.